Father God, we thank you for this day. And we thank you, Lord Jesus, just once again for the privilege of being in your house this morning to worship you. We pray now, Father, as we direct our attention to your word, Father, that you will speak to each one of us. And as I prayed earlier, may every one of us be changed by the, 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 the preaching and teaching from your word, Lord. May your word just penetrate deep within us. We love you and we thank you for us in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning marks the beginning of the end of Jesus' earthly ministry. Sunday was the first day of the last week of Jesus' life. Over the, a period of eight days, Jesus will enter Jerusalem. He'll cleanse the temple. He'll challenge the religious leaders. He'll institute the Lord's Supper. He will be betrayed. He will be arrested, tried, denied, and crucified. But we know that that grave could not contain him. Because three days after he was placed in that tomb, he arose to life again. On Friday, we're going to come back together and we're going to, we're going to um, have a time of remembering Christ's work on the cross. And then on Sunday, we're going to come back together and we're going to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And I'm looking forward to that and I pray and hope you are looking forward to next Sunday as well. And I pray that you, if you haven't already, that you have begun to invite people to join you next Sunday here for a time of worship. You know, there are so many things that occurred over Jesus' 33-year lifetime that we do not know anything about. Outside of Jesus' birth, in the, in the account of him going to the temple as a young boy, as a, as a teenager, we don't know anything else about his earthly life. When he's 30 years of age, we are introduced to Jesus as an adult, as a great teacher, and as our Lord, and as our Savior. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, for the most part, teach of Jesus' three years of his earthly ministry. And when you think about that, there are 89 chapters that make up the Gospels. 89 chapters. Of those 89 chapters, 30 of those chapters make up the final week of Jesus' earthly ministry. That is a significant portion. And that tells us there is much that we can learn from Jesus's final week. This is the week that Jesus went to the cross, died on the cross, defeated death, atoned for our sins, and provided a way that each and every one of us in this room can gain direct access to God the Father. The final week of Jesus's life, it is the crescendo of all weeks. It was the greatest and the most accomplished of all weeks in human history. Normally on Palm Sunday, we come together and we focus just on the triumphant entry. That, that moment when Jesus entered into Jerusalem, having been declared as Messiah and King. But this morning, we're going to do something a little bit different. This morning, we are going to look at portions of each of Jesus' eight days of his final week of ministry on, on this planet. And it all began on Sunday. On this day, Jesus would enter the city of Jerusalem as Messiah and King. Sunday was a day of worship. 
Sunday was a day of worship, a day of celebration, a day when the streets would be lined with people and people would be shouting out and singing Hosanna and they would be making the declaration, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. It would be on this day that the greatest parade in all of human history occurred. The streets were lined with people awaiting the arrival of King Jesus. And we read in Luke chapter 19, beginning of verse 29, these words. When he drew near to Bethpage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples saying, go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. This unbroken colt would become the float that Jesus would ride into Jerusalem upon. And I don't know about you, but when I think about a parade, I believe that bigger is always better. And when I think about a, a, an entry float for Jesus, I don't think about a donkey. I'm thinking more like a Clydesdale or a war horse. That would be more of a horse that would be fit for a king, right? But that isn't the kind of animal that was chosen. And in fact, what we read in Zechariah 9.9 are these words. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the fowl of a donkey. 500 years before the first day of the final week of Jesus' earthly ministry, the prophet Zechariah made the declaration that the Savior of the world would arrive in the city of Jerusalem riding upon the back of an unbroken donkey. I mean, that's amazing when you think about it. You know, we think about a war horse as being the, the, what Jesus should have ridden into Jerusalem upon. But when a king would come into a city and, and, and during a time of, of, of peace, he would ride a donkey, not a war horse. And that's exactly what Jesus did. As Jesus rode into town, the people lined the streets and they worshiped him. They sang Hosanna to him and they declared, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. You know, um, at my former church, one every year up until the final few years that I was there, we would do a musical called The Promise. Have you ever been to Glen Rose? Have you ever watched The Promise before? Anybody in here? A couple of y'all in here. But it's just this great musical that, that documents really from the time of Jesus' birth until his resurrection. And there's one scene in there of, of the triumphant entry. Now, obviously, we didn't have a donkey that Jesus rode into, onto the stage on, but Jesus would walk in to the side of the, from the side of the room onto the stage, and the whole stage were singing. Man, they'd be, they were singing Hosanna, blessed is he, they're waving palm branches. It's just a phenomenal time of worship. And it was one of my favorite parts of that musical. Even though I played a Pharisee, wasn't typecasting, I would play a Pharisee in that play. I still caught myself singing that song as I walked on the stage with kind of a, a an, an angry look, man, because I didn't like what was going on. I still caught myself in my heart singing Hosanna because it was such a powerful part of that musical. That was a powerful scene in that room. 
But it paled in comparison to when Jesus actually entered into Jerusalem, riding on the back of that donkey, hearing the people declare, Hosanna, and blessed is he. The crowds cried out, Hosanna, on that day. However, within days, from those very mouths, they would shout out, Give us Barabbas. Give us Barabbas. And they would also shout out, Crucify him. Crucify him. Crucify him. As Jesus is approaching the city, we read in Luke chapter 19, verse 41. And when he he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it. Jesus did not weep because of what awaited him. He did not weep because of the pain and suffering that he would soon endure. He wept for the people. He wept for the lostness of the people. In the days to come, the people are going to deny him, reject him, and choose a path that leads to eternal destruction instead of a path that leads to eternal life. Sunday was a day of worship, but it was also the beginning of sorrow for Jesus because of what awaited him. Monday was a day of purpose. On Monday, Jesus would have returned to Jerusalem. And as he is approaching the city of Jerusalem, he notices a fig tree off in the distance. Then that tree had already begun to bear leaves. And generally, apparently, a fig tree, as it's bearing leaves, it's usually also bearing fruit at the same time. And so as Jesus is approaching this fig tree, he realizes that it's not producing fruit, and so he cursed the fig tree. In Mark eleven twelve through 14, we read these words. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. Jesus cursed that tree because of its fruitlessness. The curse would be more than a curse on a tree. It would symbolize the coming judgment of God upon the nation of Israel. A fruitless life is a useless life. That tree was of no use to Jesus, so he cursed it. The nation of Israel had been anticipating the arrival of a king. Since even before King David, they had been greatly anticipating the arrival of a king, the arrival of the Messiah, the arrival of the Lord. But since the days of King David, they had hoped and waited and greatly longed for the day when the Messiah would come and restore the nation of Israel to the glory days that it once experienced under the leadership of King David and the leadership of King Solomon. Jesus came to restore the nation of Israel. But the nation of Israel rejected him, and they, as all who reject him, will be condemned for their sins and their lack of faith. Just like the fig tree was cursed, so were the people for their lack of worship. We are valued by God. That is why he created us and has gifted all of us that are believers in him with the Holy Spirit. And when we received the Holy Spirit, we also were given Christ's fruitful attributes. In Genesis, our Galatians 5, verses 22 through 23, we read these words. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, 
gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those attributes should be on full display within the life of every single believer. Every believer within this room and every believer outside of those room, this room. And if we are not bearing fruit, if we are not being fruitful people, then we better examine our hearts to see what is going on and what is keeping us from bearing fruit. Not only did Jesus curse the fig tree on this day, but he would also cleanse the temple. In Matthew 21, verses 12 through 13, we read these words, And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it into a den of robbers. As Jesus entered the temple, a chaotic scene awaited him. What should have been a, a scene of worship and sacrifice taking place, it resembled more uh, of like Canton trade days. How many of you have ever been to Canton? Okay, especially if you've ever been there in October and November, there is mass chaos everywhere. People are buying, they're selling, they're bartering, they're trading, they're doing all of these different things. And it is a scene of chaos. And it, that must have been the kind of scene that greeted Jesus as he walked into the temple on this day. The temple had become a marketplace. People were profiting instead of worshiping. And when the Lord of the temple arrived, Jesus was appalled by what he saw. So he drove out all of those money changers, all of those people that were not there to worship he drove out. I can just imagine as Jesus walked through that temple, people just kind of parting like the Red Sea because the Lord of the temple had come in to restore worship in his temple. And I can just imagine this scene as Jesus walked through those crowds on this particular day. The Lord of the temple had come to restore worship. Monday was a day of purpose. Jesus cursed the fig tree because it was not fulfilling its purpose. Jesus cleansed the temple because it had been turned into a den of thieves instead of a house of worship. The Lord has a purpose for each and every one of us in this room. He has a purpose for us to know him for us to grow in his grace and knowledge, for us to make him known, and as we read in all throughout God's word, to make disciples. We all have a purpose. Are you fulfilling your purpose? Tuesday was a day of authority. On this morning, as the disciples were returning to Jerusalem, they noticed that fig tree that Jesus had cursed the day before had withered up and died. We read in Mark eleven twenty through 22 these words. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, have faith in God. You know, I'm not a botanist. I don't know anything about trees, but I do know this. Trees do not die overnight unless the Lord of those trees curse it to die overnight. And that's exactly what happened on this particular day. The one who has authority over nature commanded that tree to die. And that is exactly what happened. That withered tree represented in Israel's impending judgment. So when they arrived in Jerusalem, they would enter the temple again. 
And immediately within that temple, Jesus' authority was challenged. Time after time throughout this day, the people are going to challenge Jesus' authority, his authority to teach, his authority to heal, his authority on paying taxes, his authority uh, on the resurrection, his authority would be challenged over and over and over on this day because the religious leaders, they are looking for a way to trap Jesus. They're looking for a way where they can find him him um, committing a sin so that they could arrest him basically is what they are trying to do. But Jesus will evade their traps and will pronounce harsh judgment upon them. He will call them hypocrites. He will call them blind guides. He will call them serpents and vipers on this day. And he will pronounce seven woes against them. In Matthew 23, verses 27 through 28, we read of one of those woes. He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanliness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. The religious leaders looked very good on the outside, but inside they were dead men walking. And they weren't leading people to eternal life. They were leading people to eternal death. All of us in this room can certainly get all glamored up, can't we? We can all look really, really pretty on the outside. But the question is, what do we look like on the inside? Have we been transformed by the blood of Jesus? Have we been transformed into the image of Jesus? If we haven't, then we're, we may look pretty on the outside, but on the inside, we are just dead men walking, just like the Pharisees and the religious leaders were. People have always been concerned about outward appearance since the beginning of time. And because of this, we are conditioned. Every time we turn the television on, every time we go to the movie, every time we look at a magazine, we see pretty person after pretty person after pretty person, don't we? The, the people are trying to get us to buy into this lie that it's all about outward appearance. But God the Father makes it very, very clear that he looks not at the outward appearance, but at the heart, right? In 1 Samuel chapter 16, verses 6 through 7, we read of a story in which Samuel goes to anoint the second king of Israel. These are the words that we read. When they came, he looked on Eliab, and thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on his height or his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Samuel had gotten caught up in this outward appearance um, being what determines a person's stature. He was looking for, for a mighty warrior of a man like King Saul. And so he comes to Jesse's sons and he, he immediately identifies one that looks like a warrior. But God the Father said, no, not him. And he chose David. David would be declared as being a man after God's own heart. We all can look good on the outside, or most of us can look good on the outside. But here's the deal. All of us can look good on the inside, right? Every single one of us. We may not be the prettiest people on the face of the earth, but if we've got inward transformation that has occurred because of the blood of Jesus, we can look good. Also on this day, Jesus would predict the impending destruction of the temple. 
He would give an elaborate end-time prophecy about the rapture, about the second coming, and about the the end-time judgment. On this day, Jesus was the master teacher. He taught with great authority. And we know that Jesus had absolute authority because in Matthew chapter 28, Jesus said that he had been given all authority by God the Father. And subsequently, he said what? All authority has been given to us as well. With the very authority that Jesus taught with, every single one of us in this room have been given that authority to teach as well, to preach as well, to make disciples as well. Tuesday was a day of authority. Wednesday would be a day of silence. Even though we don't have a record of Jesus doing any ministry on this day, what we do have a record of, we have a record of when Judas sold his soul to the devil and would, for just a measly bag of coins, he would betray the Lord Jesus Christ. In Luke 22, 1 through 6, we read these words. Now the feast of unleavened bread drew near, which is called the Passover. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put him to death, for they feared the people. Then Satan entered into Judas, called Iscariot, who was, the fa- num- who was of the number of the twelve. He went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money. So he consented and sought an opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of a crowd. Wednesday was a day of silence. Thursday would be a day of preparation. Thursday was a day of preparation. It was the day that the disciples prepared the upper room for the Passover meal with Jesus. It would be around that Passover table. That Jesus would stoop so low and he would wash the feet of his disciples. The creator of all stooped so low that he washed the feet of his dirty disciples. In John 13, 12 through 17, we read of this account. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garment and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a master or a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. It would also be around that table that Jesus would, review, would reveal who his betrayer was. He would institute the Lord's Supper as a way for you and I and the disciples to remember the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And it would also be around that table that he would tell Peter that three times before the rooster crows, you will betray me. Following the Lord's Supper... Jesus would lead his disciples to Gethsemane for a time of prayer. He would tell all but Matthew, Mark, or all but um, Peter, James, and John to wait for his return and to pray where they were at. But he would take the other three and he would lead them a little bit closer so that they could watch 
and witness what was about to transpire. He would tell them to pray, but he also told them to watch. Matthew, Mark, and Luke give us a picture of what these men witnessed. In Luke 22, verses 40 through 46, we get an idea of the agony that Jesus was in as he awaited the time in which he was going to be betrayed by Judas and led to the cross. We read these words. And when he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw, and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and, he, and, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. And when he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. You and I get a clear picture of Jesus being clothed in his full humanity right here. We can sense his agony. His agony for his disciples. His agony even for us in this room. His agony for all of humanity as he was preparing to go to the cross and die upon that cross to provide a way for all of us in this room to enter into eternal life. There is no greater love ever demonstrated than the love that Jesus demonstrated for us. Romans 5.8 says that God demonstrated his love for us in this. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus loved us so much that he endured great agony so that all of us can enter into an eternal relationship with him. The cross awaits him. In a matter of moments, this day of preparation would yield and become a day of suffering. Friday was a day of suffering. It would be on this day that Jesus was betrayed. He was abandoned. He was tried, suffered, and beaten. He was crucified, and he died. Friday, we're going to spend our time focusing in on this particular day. But Friday represents day one of Jesus inside of that grave. Saturday was a day of absence. It would be on Saturday that that tomb would be made secure by Pilate and his guards. In Matthew 27, we read these words beginning in verse 62. The next day, that is after the day of preparation... The chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember how that imposter said, While he was still alive, after three days I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people, He has risen from the dead, and the last fraud will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, You have a guard of soldiers. Go and make it as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. Saturday represents day two inside that tomb. And then Sunday. Sunday was a day of triumph. It would begin with Jesus inside of that tomb representing day three. 
but it would also be on this day that Jesus would rise to life again. It was on this day that just as the tomb was open for all to see its emptiness, a portal was open for you and I to enter into an eternal relationship with God the Father. Jesus declared himself as the door, as the way for all men to enter into an eternal relationship with him. Jesus said in John fourteen six that I am the way, the truth, and life. No one comes unto the Father except through me. Jesus became the way for all men, all women, all students, and all children to enter into an eternal relationship with him. When Jesus Christ defeated death and that tomb burst forth, he burst forth out of that tomb. At that moment, all of us were given an opportunity to enter into an eternal relationship with him. We were given the opportunity to be forgiven of our sins. And Jesus says, in the book of Psalms, that he'll take that sin and remove it as far as the east is from the west. Romans 6.23 says this, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. Because of the work of Christ on the cross and him defeating death, all of us in this room can be forgiven of our sins. We're told ahead of the time in the first part of that verse that the consequences of our sin is death. But the free gift is eternal life through Christ Jesus. In Romans 10, 9, we also read these words. But if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. If you are here this morning and you have never entered into a relationship with Jesus Christ, you have never repented of your sins, and you have never cried out to Jesus to be your Lord and Savior, I want to invite you this morning to make the greatest decision that you could ever make. Romans 10, 13 says that for all who calls on the name of the Lord, they shall be saved. If you are here this morning, you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. In just a moment, I'm going to be standing down here, and I want to give you an opportunity to come to know Jesus as your Lord and Savior. This crescendo of all weeks... It was the week that changed everything. Have you been changed by the gospel? Have you allowed Jesus to change you and to transform you and to give you a new life? If you haven't, then I invite you this morning to do that very thing, to come to know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Man, there's no greater week than this week than to place your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. I remember it was on Easter Sunday of my 11th year that I gave my life to Jesus Christ. If you don't know Jesus, do it this Easter week. Man, do it today, this morning. Come to know Jesus as your Lord and Savior. You may be here this morning and you need to come to know Christ as your Lord and Savior. You may be here and you've been visiting this church a while and the Lord is leading you to make friendship your church home. You may be here this morning and you just need to pray. You need to pray for the Lord to reveal to you who you need to invite to be a part of our services next week. Last week I had two chairs that were on this stage. One, one had the words astray on it and the other had the words lost on it. And the challenge was for us to reach out to those within our faith family that haven't been here in a while and invite them back to church. The other challenge was this. If you know someone that does not have a relationship with Jesus Christ, to reach out to them and invite them to church or you yourself go and share the good news and the plan of salvation with them. 
You may still need to be praying that prayer. Who do I need to reach out to? And during this time of invitation, I want to invite you to do that. Let's stand together. I'm going to lead us in a time of prayer. And if there's a decision you need to make, you come. Father God, we come before you now, Lord Jesus, just thanking you. Father, for the work that you did on the cross for us. Father, we thank you for this, the, the, the Passion Week, for the final week, Lord. Throughout this week, there are so many things that happen that we can't even begin in one um, 30 or so minute sermon to go through everything. But Father, I pray this morning that as we have walked through each one of these different days, that we have seen a glimpse of your glory. We've seen a glimpse of your goodness. We've seen a glimpse of your mercy. We've seen a glimpse of your authority. And we've seen a glimpse of what you want to do to us and in us, that you want to transform us. All it takes is for us to cry out to you, to be our Lord and our Savior, and to make a, a, a change of, of our lives where we, where we say we're no longer going to live for this world, but we're going to live for you. We're going to ascribe great worship to you and not great worship to the things of this world. So, Father, I pray this morning that if there is someone here in this room that has yet to enter into an eternal relationship with you, they've yet to be transformed on the inside that this morning they'll be transformed. Father, they will allow the blood of Jesus just to wash over them. Father, if there's someone here that does not know you, I pray that you'll draw them unto salvation. Father, there may be some here this morning, Lord, that have been visiting this church for a while and you're leading them to become a part of this faith family, Lord, and we welcome them to be a part of this faith family. Others, Lord, where we're at, we may just need to pray. Father, you know how, how we need to respond to this message and respond to your word, and Father, we pray that you'll lead us to do that now. For it's in the name of Jesus we pray, amen. If there's a decision you need to make, you come now. You come. Every head bowed and every eye closed, just for a moment, we're just going to enter into a time of, 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 of prayer. We're going to enter into a time of, of, of seeking the Lord to just reveal to us how we need to respond to this message. So with every head bowed and every eye closed, you pray. If you need to respond this morning to the message, you come. You come.